Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Excitement over the prospects for artificial intelligence has driven US stock market valuations to a historic high. But can AI technologies deliver on their promise? Or is this yet another case of irrational exuberance in the stock market? In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Eric Siegel, a former Columbia University professor who taught computer science courses in machine learning and AI. Siegel is now a consultant and he's just published a new book called The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. In the podcast, we explore some of the paradoxes surrounding AI. Why this tech tool with apparently unlimited promise may in fact be the hardest to use and why computers promising us greater autonomy may require more supervision from humans. Eric, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, could you tell listeners a bit about yourself, your area of work, and your new book? Sure. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Um, I've been in machine learning for 30 years. I was a professor at Columbia University, where I taught the grad courses in machine learning and AI. And I've been an independent consultant for 20 years. I'm the founder of the long-running Machine Learning Week conference series, which also has a European event. We're, we're in the US in June and uh, usually in October in Berlin. Um, my new book is called uh, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. So the book quickly says, hey, this book's about machine learning. AI is a brand. It can mean a lot of different things. But what we have that's concrete, real, and valuable is machine learning. However, with all the potential use cases and a great track record, it turns out that a majority of new projects are failing to deploy. So I'm addressing that uh, because there is no standardized business practice playbook paradigm framework uh, well known to business professionals for running machine learning projects end to end from inception to deployment or con- conception to deployment. Um, but the the um, this technology to get it to work and deliver value very much needs a specialized business practice. Great. Thank you for that introduction. And now you mentioned uh, a both AI and machine learning. What what's the what's the difference? Uh, what's what what's the overlap and what's the difference? Well, depending on who you ask, there is no difference. I mean, everything that when people use AI, they're almost always talking about something that is or could be built on machine learning. AI uh, is usually at least slightly misleading depending on context, although sometimes it's just a synonym for machine learning because the word AI, you know, it it's... Uh, there's no agreed definition. It's 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 a concept. It's a brand. It's an idea. It's great for science fiction and um, philosophy, but it it rests on the word intelligence, which is nothing but a characteristic of humans. And when you try to uh, ascribe a machine with intelligence, uh, it's hard to put a finger on exactly what you might mean um, that's concrete and also plausible. Um, so it kind of promises the moon intrinsically. Now, these days, when people say AI, they're usually talking about generative AI. And that's a very particular way of using machine learning in order to generate new content, like writing in English or other na- natural languages, writing code, uh, generating images. Um, and that's a- an amazing new advent in, in sort of a- an advanced use of machine learning over a great amount of data. Um, it's quite astonishing. Um, 
However, the so, and I'm extremely excited about it. At the same time, I'm a little astonished that the world is even more excited than I am. That the in general, what we're getting in the press, the media, and some of the leading enterprises is hype in the sense that it's a promise that what we're seeing, as seemingly human-like as it may be, and impressive as it might be, is actually a concrete, tangible step towards human-level capabilities. I believe that's a myth and it's an overpromise. Um, so if we temper our excitement, it's still super exciting. Machine learning is how you improve all the large-scale operations of organizations because what it delivers is predictions and predictions directly inform decisions about who to contact for marketing and which transaction to audit for fraud and which ad to serve and many other operational decisions. Right. And in your book, you talk about some of the deployments of machine learning that have worked well, including an example of how UPS changed its the way it delivered parcels or the, the, the routes followed by its drivers using machine learning. Uh, there's another example of um, the uh, scores used by banks or credit rating companies to identify potentially fraudulent transactions. Could you talk a bit more about some of the implementations of machine learning that have worked well and about some of the other ones that haven't worked so well and, and you know why they haven't worked so well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so the two of the main examples I cover in the book, as you mentioned, are UPS and also FICO for actually for fraud detection, although they're better known for credit scoring. So with the UPS example, they're predicting where will packages be delivered? What destination addresses will receive a package tomorrow in order to better and more optimally plan exactly how to allocate packages to a whole bunch of delivery trucks at a, sh at a shipping center for tomorrow morning's departures for those rounds that, that day of deliveries. Um, and in combination with another system that prescribes the actual driving route, this system together saves UPS annually 185 million miles of driving, $350 million. That, that, that also means 8 million gallon, gallons of fuel and 185,000 metric tons of emissions. It's an amazing success story. And it's a particularly, um, particularly rare one because we're talking about a, a, a longstanding organization, that is to say old, entrenched in its ways, more than 100 years old now. Um, so that change to the process, not just the advanced number crunching, but then actually implementing or deploying, and that's what my book's focused on, is getting it deployed. And that's often uh, the, the last mile there that doesn't, doesn't get completed, meant, you know, meant convincing a, a, up to the executives that, to authorize these changes and then down to convincing the loading dock workers to, to change their behavior according to new prescriptions, not to mention the drivers. As I mentioned, it also went along with the prescribed driving routes. Um, Can I just stop you there for a second, Eric? So yeah. the, the, way that, the way the algorithm works, as I've understood it from your book, is that the, it didn't necessarily uh, know at the beginning of the day where to send the drivers. Is that right? How, how did it differ in, in from the existing practices of, I guess, giving a particular driver, a particular geographical route to follow. What did the ML algorithm do differently to, I, mean, I think you give an example where right. it says like, well, don't, don't go to the nearest address, go, go, you know, deliver here, then go, go three addresses further away and then come back because that made more sense from the point of right. view of the whole and system. Had, 
that had to do with the driving. So these two these two improvements go together, making better decisions about how to allocate packages to trucks. Right. Um, and then separately, now, once you've done that more optimally, now each truck has a potentially optimal area that it could cover well, but it's not going to actually cover it well unless you also prescribe the driving step-by-step uh, -step driving to the, to the um, to the drivers. So sort of you're coming to full fruition by putting both of these pieces together at once. But in terms of just the allocation of packages, the, the problem UPS faces is uncertainty. It turns out that at the beginning of the evening or even late afternoon, when they need to start the long overnight process of deciding how to allocate the packages to trucks and then actually loading the trucks, that they don't yet know all the packages that are going to come in overnight on flights and such. There's uncertainty for a variety of reasons in this in this complex system. So they have some known packages that are already at the shipping center and other ones that they can only presuppose. Now they're using machine learning, a predictive model based on historical data to do that. And they and so now the system that allocates the known packages is now allocating known alongside tentatively presupposed packages and therefore having a more holistic view of what's likely to happen tomorrow. And with that broader perspective, this relatively complex advanced system of, of deciding how to allocate trucks to these different destinations and the, the packages that are going there is is done that much better and it makes a really big difference mm. um so so that and that's a relatively complex deployment in 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 enterprise applications of machine learning usually it's a really straightforward who's you're predicting who's going to buy if i market to them and that directly informs okay then market to them which transaction is fraudulent and that directly informs okay let's hold or audit those transactions more likely to be fraudulent. Which credit applicant is likely to turn out to be a bad debtor and not pay back or miss repeated bill payments? Um, okay, well, let's reconsider, raise the APR or, or, or decline the application for credit. So did you have these one-on-one -on -one manifestations? And, and that's in general why these predictive applications, also known as predictive analytics or predictive AI, these use cases, this is where you have the opportunity to improve all the main operations, all the large scale processes of, of organizations or virtually all of them, because those predictions are the holy grail for driving decisions. These large scale operations are made up of decisions. We yeah. generally make many wrong decisions. Business is a numbers game. We're tipping the odds a little bit better in our favor. And in that sense, this is the most actionable form of analytics because each individual um, prediction as to whether the individual will click buy, lie, or die, or cancel their mm -hmm. subscription, any kind of outcome, directly informs the decision pertaining to that individual. So, in, it's a, in a sense, though, the 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 algorithm or the, the computers um, understand our complex interactions as human beings better than we do ourselves, or better than we can see uh, ourselves. Yeah, I mean, taking a step back, this is data driven, right? This is what it means to apply science to business. This is this is like I mean if I if I have a million prospects on my direct mail marketing list and then I track who does respond to the marketing campaign that, that I you know, the mass marketing that we completed a few months ago that's his, history has spoken right those are outcomes those are cases from which to learn and, and they compose what's called the training data from which machine learning learns how to predict um, and to process a million yes/no examples 
positive versus negative. They did buy, they didn't. It turned out to be fraudulent. It wasn't. Um, they were good. They turned out to be a good debtor. They weren't. They clicked on the ad. They didn't. It's, it's about differentiating between what are likely to be positive versus negative outcomes. And it applies for healthcare as well. Um, you know, once you have, you, you know, more than a couple dozen examples, a human's not going to do a great job finding the most pertinent and long lasting patterns or formulas that characterize that behavior. So, so um, how do you sell machine learning projects to clients if the benefits may only be visible later on? You can't show them necessarily up front, uh, but yeah. from what you've described, they clearly are there in many cases. So, what, what's the, what's you know, how do you get over that hurdle? Well, it, the sales cycle for machine learning has historically been tricky in that regard, right? You never know what you're going to get. It's it's this is this is empirical science, so you you have to just. Um, run the numbers and then and then try it out to find out. So, so in that sense it becomes kind of abstract. However, the you can find out a good sense of how well it'll work very quickly um, without actually deploying it. So and that's what's called the testing phase. So what happens is in general what we're doing is leveraging historical data what's also known as found data. And in, in a sense, that's why big data was a was a big meme for a while there. The big in big data is about how exciting it is that data is so valuable because it's predictive, we can learn from it to predict, and that data exists. It's a side effect of conducting business. It's not necessarily collected for the purposes of learning from it or doing machine learning, but all the sort of doing business as usual and conducting transactions has this side effect of building up this extremely valuable data. So you take that data, you know from it who did or didn't cancel, who did or didn't turn out to be a fraudulent um, customer or a transaction um, who did or didn't buy a product um, and which ads were clicked on. So you have that historical data from which to learn. And what you do in this sort of offline initial part of the project is you take part of that data and you hold it aside as test data so that whatever you've learned, and that's what machine learning does. It learns, it produces, it generates a predictive model, which is patterns or formulas that then can make predictions for individuals under new situations. Um, and then you can try it out and see how well it performs over this held aside test data that was not involved in its development and therefore serves as an objective estimate of how well the model performs in general over cases that have never before been encountered. So you get that immediate or relatively quickly, even before deployment, um, measure of how good the model is. So why is it that so many machine learning projects fail to reach deployment stage? What 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 happens in the interim? Is it is it challenges with the data? Is it uh, lack of you know some problems at the you know the structure of the the management and the the, of the client and what you know what what causes that to happen? Yeah, it's the latter, not the former. The majority of the issues are not technical, but organizational. And it's ultimately the disconnect between the techies, you know, the quants, the data scientists, yeah. and the business professionals, the the non-quant, the stakeholder, the line of business manager in charge of the operation meant to be improved by uh, these predictions. Um, and the disconnect comes in many forms, um, but ultimately, you know, these models don't predict like a magic crystal ball. They don't have high confidence in general. Who's going to click buy, lie, or die? For many of these use cases, we're literally predicting about the behavior of a human or the healthcare outcome of a human or a corporate client or which satellite's going to run out of battery. But whatever it is, um, 
what you can do is put odds on it. This is like this, this individual is five times more likely than average to buy. There's still only a 15% chance that they're going to buy. You know, we don't, we don't have, we don't have that magic crystal ball, but it turns out to be extremely valuable. So this is a nice example where you have to get into the right arithmetic. You don't have to get into the rocket science, but the business professional needs to get a good concrete sense, semi-technical sense of what's going to happen, what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. So the second of those, continuing on that, what, how well that measure, the metric, the arithmetic, the evaluation, the quantitative evaluation of what, how well it predicts, stakeholders can understand, hey, okay, this doesn't predict like a magic crystal ball, and yet somehow it's still valuable. But what's the right number? People talk about accuracy. That's usually the wrong number. It's impertinent and misleading. But, but stakeholders don't know, and data scientists don't know how to communicate to stakeholders quite yet, is you know, what are the numbers that are pertinent? How do I translate into business metrics like profit and, and meaningful metrics sort of, there's something called lift, which is a predictive multiplier. So there's technical metrics that are pertinent. There are other ones that are impertinent. And then there's business metrics like profit, ROI, number of customers saved. And you need to kind of get your head around that. That's an entire chapter of the book. It's one of the six steps of, of the business practice I present in the book, which, which by the way, I call biz ML. Right. Well, you, you said that the, the you know ML projects failing is rarely to do to do with the technical side. It's usually to do with the yeah. some organizational challenges. But are there cases where ML projects go wrong because something went wrong with the the data set or the, some bias in the machine or or, or in the coding uh, or the, oh know, yeah? With the, so could you give some examples of that and, and what what can we do about it? Sure, absolutely. I give examples like Zillow, real estate aid, aid, uh, company in the U.S automatically bought a bunch of properties and they were overzealous with the model. And I can tell you a little bit more about that, but I'll just say that that's definitely the rarity. What happens much more often is you don't deploy a model that should be rather than deploying a model that shouldn't be. So that kind of overly aggressive, overzealous deployment is, is rarely the thing that goes wrong. Most new ML projects actually fail to deploy because of that disconnect, stakeholders getting cold feet, because we're talking about changing operations that are yeah. the main uh, central part of an organization. But um, yeah, so for example, Zillow started relying too heavily on a predictive model that um, tried to estimate the value of properties and invested many, many millions of dollars um, into fairly automatic or semi-automatic purchasing of properties to then um, to then turn them around. Um, and it failed. It had to shut that down. It lost a lot of money. Right. So they'd forgotten about some other key risks like liquidity risk or... Yeah. I mean, there's... Look, in a lot of these use cases, there's, a, there's actually a lot of leniency and leeway for error, right? If I'm... Um, deciding automatically which credit card transaction and FICO's fraud detection model does this for for 90% of the credit cards in the US and UK, two thirds worldwide, for every one of their transactions automatically real time decides that instance in that it, or rather I should say that their model directly informs an automatic instantaneous decision of whether to authorize the transaction or hold it as potentially fraudulent. And if they hold a transaction that's not fraudulent, uh, if the bank using this model does that in real time, that's an inconvenience to that legitimate cardholder who's trying to make a purchase. And that inconvenience does have a cost, 
but it's not a dire cost, right? It's, it, they're going to eventually get fed up and start using a different credit card, for example. Whereas the other error of, look, this actually was fraudulent, but it was authorized. That means that the criminal gets away with the loot and the bank ends up having to cover, eat that cost. That's usually a higher cost, a more a, a more dire error. But both of these errors happen and we we can find the way to strike the balance between them and you can do the math, you can do the arithmetic, you can do the accounting ahead of time to find that right balance and make sure that in general, you're going to stay within reasonable bounds. For buying and selling property, though, the margins are thinner, the the room for error turned out to, to be uh, much smaller than they had presumed. But for a lot of these, for targeting marketing, credit scoring, financial credit risk, fraud detection, delivering packages, it really turns out that the ability to predict better than guessing does pan out. It's extremely valuable. If only we can all get on the same page and speak the same language uh, in order to participate in the end-to-end -end project. Let's move on to talk a bit about artificial uh, general intelligence and the, the, the current excitement about that. You stated at a few points in your book that you think there might be you know, the hype about um, general intelligence um, may be uh, overdone um, and that it might be the most compelling ghost story ever. What, what's the reason for your skepticism there? I do think it's a ghost story. I think that I don't I don't think that there's any evidence uh, that we're that we're taking concrete steps towards human level capability. So AGI, artificial general intelligence, which means it's capable of anything a human can do. It'll run a Fortune 500 company, uh, for example. Uh, so, you know, people qualify that. They say capable of any intellectual task uh, or cognitive tasks, differentiated from robots, but same, basically the same thing. It can be your virtual assistant. It can be a manager. It can, it can you can onboard it as an employee and let it rip just the same as a human employee. Um, I don't, I don't think it's plausible that we're headed towards that or that it's happening within decades. I think that it's, it's speculative just the same as it was in the fifties when Alan Turing first came up with the thought experiment of the Turing test. Um, so I do think it's, it's hype pure and simple. Um, but it's not just hype. I think there's a lot of people who truly believe it. Um, it, I'd say it's either a, a myth, a fairy tale or a ghost story, depending on whether you're being an optimist or a doomer. Um, but either way, it's kind of like it's the book that Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, would have written if she knew about algorithms. You know, it's alive. And I don't think the machine's going to become alive. I don't think that we're headed towards autonomy. In fact, the irony is that with the advent of generative AI, where you can chat with it and it interacts in a very seemingly human-like manner, which is incredible, um, ironically, that those that advent of more seemingly human-like behavior is actually um, less potentially autonomous. You've got more autonomy in those use cases I've been talking about so far, where there's leeway for error, where it's going to do a much better job than guessing. It's do a much better job than some handwritten rules by a human, um, but it's not going to be a magic crystal ball. Whereas if you're having the thing write copy that you're then going to provide as marketing or send to a customer, there always has to be a human right there in the loop. Basically, you have to proofread everything that it generates. Yes, I, 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 that, that struck me in your book. You said that computers that seem more human-like tend to offer less potential for autonomy. And I was wondering, I wanted to ask you about that. So you're, we can't rely on the, the output of these um, machines. We have to check uh, 
carefully what they what they say. I know that some lawyers have been really worried about some of the the uses of AI to generate legal opinions where some of the the um, the references may not even be you know be there. They may may, may just have been or may drawn right. from, I mean- yeah. And that's the over-reliance thing, kind of analogous to to what Zillow did, where people are like, hey, this thing seems so smart, and then they just start trusting the copy-paste it without without double-checking it. That's a, that's a grave error, but I don't think that's a very prevalent error. I think people understand at least that today's um, version of, say, chat GPT is uh, not reliable. And that makes sense, right? I mean, it was designed to be human-like. It's designed on the per word level. It's predicting, just like predicting customer outcomes, it's predicting what should the next word be. But it's not designed at the core to meet higher level human goals, such as being correct or always knowing the right answer. By the way, just to clarify, um, I actually don't get that much into the AI hype and I don't, or AGI in in the book. Um, It was actually other articles, other writing that you're you're remembering um, that I do about it. The book, Couple times mentions. Ah, I think the AI hype is is a bit, but the high the the antidote to the hype is concretely focusing on very specific, tangible value in today's deployments, and, and that's what I'm focusing on um, in this in the book. But I I'm also very interested in trying to help extinguish the hype. I think it's costly. I think it's going to lead to more AI winters. Um, I think, and and that's bad. I mean, the the hype it can be defined as a mismanagement of expectations. And then when reality sets in, there's stigma, blowback, and you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a repeat of the the dot-com hype that happened around the end of the 1990s. Uh, but mm. I mean, there, there was yeah. some lasting, um, you know, the, the legacy of that came through in other ways, didn't it? But it didn't it, those websites didn't most of them didn't survive, but the but the the, 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 the you know the underlying infrastructure that uh, resulted turned out to be extremely valuable. Did that's that's right. I mean, and there's there's real value in these predictive applicate use cases of machine learning, and there's real value in the generative, right? Having it write a first draft for you, so long as you yeah. recognize that you better really proofread it and check everything it says, um, is it can really improve efficiency depending on the particular job that it's helping you with. Yeah, I know your book is not, you know, it's not not largely about uh, artificial general intelligence, but while I've got you here, I want to ask you about the the scope for, for you know, for bad behavior, because uh, I was on a webinar yesterday where they showed, the, the guy presenting showed himself uh, an image of himself speaking in 10 different languages that had all been produced, that the speeches had all been produced by, Chat GPT. It just it does seem like this could be potentially a goldmine for fraudsters and and the creators of deep fakes. Is that something we need to worry about quite seriously, or or is it is that is that concern overblown? Yeah, I think that the fraudster thing, the misinformation thing, um, that that concern hasn't quite clicked with me on the level a lot of people are because the thing is humans can already just generate. Uh, misinformation. You don't need a chatbot to do that. It might help you do it more efficiently. I think the implication, though, is that it potentially would be having customized one-on-one fraudulent conversations. But again, you know, you can't. It's not actually human-like once you get down to it. <laughs> uh, it's just seemingly human-like. So um, I don't. I don't know that we can have fraudsters automating any better than anyone else. Yeah. It's not autonomous. Um, it's just improving efficiency, whether you're doing something good or doing something bad. Um, uh, as far as language translation, um, that's fascinating. 
language translation was already done very well with deep learning even before generative AI. But the fact that these, it's fascinating because <clears throat> large language models like ChatGPT, <clears throat> excuse me, um, turn out to do a lot of different things fairly well or somewhat well, depending on the particular task, including coding and translating languages and answering questions. Um, it's just that they're often, of course, wrong. Hmm. And let's return to the the, the, the machine learning uh, topic that you cover extensively in your book. Um, you talked about some of the successful implementations of this type of technology. Where are the kind of the remaining the largest remaining opportunities for you know for efficiency gains other sectors that haven't really used it enough or is it, is it certain oh, types yeah. of type where would you say the, the biggest outstanding opportunities are well in general the opportunities are outside the leaders the leaders kind of got it right they're um including the big five big tech a lot of big tech um financial services especially larger organizations tend to be at the forefront i mean they've been doing credit scoring for years. Um, most large companies direct marketing in this way. Pretty much all the large cell phone carriers are predict who's going to cancel their their subscription and defect to another cell to a competitor um, in order to target retention offers. Um, right. But it's the rest of the world that and the rest of this processes where there's so much potential and it's not systematic and uniform. Um, it's not um, there's not, it's not a standardized practice. So that's what I'm trying to do in the book is to let everybody else catch up. What are you now focusing on? What's your next project? Well, the main, the main thing I'm doing right now is, is super stealthy, although it's not secrets. We just don't even have a website yet. And, uh, uh, I've co-founded a company called Gooder AI, and it's focused on that third of three kind of things everyone needs to wrap their heads around, which is the quantitative. So as I mentioned, all business stakeholders need to understand what's done I'm, excuse me, what's predicted, how well, and then what's done about it. And the second of those three is that quantitative assessment. And right now it's mostly focused on technical metrics rather than simple business metrics that everyone can understand like profit and return on investment. Um, translating between the two turns out to have some tricks. So we're, we're, um, we're creating a software solution at Gooder AI that does that. I am still running the conference series, Machine Learning Week. It's the first week in June. Um, in Phoenix, and then in October in in Berlin, um, and uh, my consultancy continues with a lot of article writings and, and other various engagements. Great, Eric. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a very interesting conversation, and I've learned a lot from you. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Paul. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode.